Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. And today we're going to be covering one interesting springboard stat, if you want to call it that, for each and every team in the Eastern Conference. So Dan and I are going to alternate teams, and we came in with these, these stats are current where necessary going into games played on Monday night. Uh, and kind of using these as as launching pads for bigger conversations about the teams for specific players, again, focusing only on the Eastern Conference. Before I kick it over to Dan, I do want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, review uh, wherever you find this podcast. We're available pretty much everywhere at this point. And also go ahead and take some time and find us on YouTube. It's under Hardwood Knox and subscribe there. We're trying really hard to get to over a thousand uh, subscribers so that we can start monetizing some of these videos and put out even more content. And each and every one is very much appreciated. So with that out of the way, how's it going, Dan? I am doing better than Royce O'Neal. I actually just watched him get need in the O'Neals before we started podcasting. So in the Utah Jazz game against the Spurs. So hopefully he's okay. But other than that, I am grand. How about yourself? As you can probably tell, I am trying to fight through a sickness here. My my voice is going in and out a little bit here. I have tested negative for COVID, so I'm I'm pleased with that and just dealing with some sort of cold or flu or something. But I'm just going to consider this my flu podcast. Just going to channel the inner Michael Jordan and just you know talk the hell out of it. I mean, you're calling your shot here, so you better bring your your A game <laughs> as you as you fire up the Atlanta Hawks stat machine. Yeah, so I, I think with the Hawks. I wanted to focus on what I thought was the most important barometer of their progress between last season and this season. So my number is is minus 4.0, and that's their net rating without Trey Young on the floor per basketball reference. It was supposed to improve this season just with the additions that they made with DeLon Wright, with Sharif Cooper coming in, with a bunch of wings who could still handle the ball and provide that secondary creation that this team needs to thrive with Trey Young still doing so much. And that hasn't been the case. For reference, last year's number without him on the court was minus 1.8. So this is trending in the wrong direction. And I, I can't quite tell if I view that as a positive or a negative because the Hawks, much like so many other teams, have struggled with continuity. They've had so many players entering the COVID-19 protocols. They've had a lot of injuries to deal with. Is this something that we can expect to regress positively to a more reasonable number that's at least comparable to last year's? Or is this a red flag that this team is not constructed to go beyond where it got last season with an Eastern Conference Finals appearance? So you're viewing it as a positive in the sense that this tells them they're not at that level and they will proceed to act accordingly? If that is the case, I wonder how they act accordingly. Is it a well, consolidation trade? No, I, I, I'm genuinely I'm genuinely waffling between it being a positive and a negative. And I think it's probably a little of both, where the, the circumstances of this season have made it harder for them to work those new additions into the lineup. Again, referring to, to Wright and Sharif Cooper. I think the talent is still there where this weakness could be addressed. It just hasn't happened yet. And the Hawks have been mediocre as a result. So I'm I'm very much on the fence. I could I could be swayed either way because I think it's it's indicative of the struggles, but not necessarily telling about the future. I get that. I'd be curious to see what that number was before they suffered their beatdown by the Knicks, uh, which he did not play in. So I'm sure those numbers might actually be skewed even further towards the negative. But they have not made. They've been one of the most disappointing NBA teams this season. And I think there's you could pinpoint a number of things. Clint Capella started slow. 
their defense has been god awful for for most of the season. Uh, they've been awful in the fourth quarter as well. And I do think even the fourth quarter sort of telltale of them having those bench heavy units out there to start, there needs to be a way to figure those things out. And I think I tend to lean towards they need a consolidation trade. I don't know if they'll act that way. And it's so tough with Cam Reddish. He's in and out of the rumor mill, but it's at this point, he's consistently healthier than DeAndre Hunter. And he's not a throwaway asset. He's a year left on his rookie scale. And the night that we're recording this, he went kaboom um, in the first half of, of Atlanta's game. So it's, it's just tough to read what this team could do. But I think that they either need a trade that's going to help them with those non-trade minutes or like to just boost them as a defensive team somehow. They have a lot of talent up and down. And I think even with the injuries, even with the league's health and safety protocols, they've clearly been one of the two or three b- biggest disappointments in the NBA thus far. Yeah, I'm curious who you would have as a bigger disappointment. Because for me, I think Atlanta is probably number one. And I still don't have too much long long-term concern. I'm not sure I would make that consolidation trade that you referenced quite yet just because I do still believe in the pieces and the construction we saw work last year. This might just be a regular season filled with a little bit more experimentation, a little bit more reversion to the the mid-range heavy less ball movement offense that we've typically seen under Nate McMillan, but the personnel shouldn't be regressing and the fits still make sense. So maybe it's just foolish of me but I, i'm i'm holding on to hope here i don't think it's foolish i just think you get to a point where we've been saying that for a while now with them even dating back to the season before like look at all this town look at all this depth yeah yeah um and then especially the past two seasons because of how they spent in the off season of of 2020 but no i don't i don't think you're necessarily a fool for expecting it i think it's and speaking of and by the way i think atlanta is probably the biggest disappointment new york or the lakers could be up there and I i'm think not willing to put the lakers just because expectations were unrealistic from the start and we knew that this is bad, though. This is, I will say, the Lakers have, even if you didn't expect them to be like top three in the West, they've they've underachieved still. See, I, I feel like I had them as a fringe playoff team going into the year. So for me, it's like kind of in line with what I expected. Well, anyway, this next team could be argued to be one of the bigger disappointments in the league, and it's the Celtics. As we're recording this, they're in the bottom 12 of points scored per possession on offense. And there's so many things wrong with their offense. Um, but I'm looking at just their their effective field goal percentage, which combines two and three point efficiency on wide open jumpers outside 10 feet. It's 50.4. That is low. It's 27th in the league. And when you just couple that with the fact that they're a bottom five team, when it comes to the frequency with which their share of the shots come at the rim, you start to have some really big offensive problems. You're reliant on the perimeter and yet you're not shooting like these great clips from them. And some of the biggest culprits that factor into this stat is Al Horford shooting 30.9% on wide open threes. Dennis Schroeder, an effective field goal percentage of 33.9 on wide open jumpers in general. He's shooting 21.1 on wide open two-point jumpers and 25% on wide open threes. And then Marcus Smart, uh, he's shooting 33.3% on wide open two-pointers. Not a huge sample size. They account for a very small percentage of his shots. But this is just a team that's not even necessarily getting a ton of easy shots. And then they're not even consistently making some of the easy shots that they are taking. And they are finishing well at the rim. They just don't get there a ton. And so when you kind of factor it in with some turbulent three-point shooting from Jason Tatum, the, the level of difficulty on his looks, I get it. But that's I think he's done a better job getting to the rim and finishing through contact over the past couple of weeks. But their offense is – they have the talent to be better than 18th, 19th in points scored per possession. And again, there's a lot of inconsistencies factored in here. But you do have some really key players not hitting – some of their higher quality looks on the season. 
I would expect some improvement there just as things regress to the mean, but I I also don't know that I'm that surprised given the construction of this roster because ultimately, like who are you relying on as deadly perimeter shooters? You've got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but they're subject to so much defensive attention that it's harder to get those high quality looks off because the pieces around them just aren't conducive to drawing defensive attention. You know, a lot of the names you mentioned, Marcus Smart, Dennis Schroeder, Al Horford, these aren't guys who we should expect to be knockdown shooters. Granted, they should be hitting at a higher clip than they are on these wide open looks, but I just I'm not that surprised by this one just because it seems like if Boston was going to have an Achilles heel, this is exactly what it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, look, another Aaron Neesmith, 22.2% on wide open threes. They just have guys that are supposed to be shooting better than they are in the rotation that are not. I mean, even when you look at some of the wide open three-point clips, like, let's use, I mean, this is Peyton Pritchard, 34.1% on wide open threes. Like, that's, that he hasn't had a good year to begin with, but that's yeah. not great. Uh, Jalen Brown has done his part there, but like Jason Tatum, you probably want him. He's not getting a ton of wide open threes, and 37.5% is higher than his clip for the season from deep, but that's even just on wide open threes. I'm just saying that's probably around league average. I haven't looked at the league average mark. And so you'd hope some of these guys are eclipsing those marks. I don't know if I've hoped for Boston's offense to be much better than this on the season nope. though. I think if, if you told me that they'll finish in the bottom 10, I'll say that they will be better than that. But if you're going to tell me that they're going to finish in the top 13, I'm probably going to take the under, whereas I, I think well. they're going to yeah. be below league average or around there. I'm right there with you. Let's uh, let's move on to the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, who are next up here. I, I feel like with Brooklyn, so much of the conversation from a national perspective has focused on the biggest names. We've we've heard ad nauseum how Kevin Durant is fully recovered from the previous injuries and is in the MVP race, maybe even leading the MVP race on some ballots. We've heard about how James Harden <clears throat> has had to fight to overcome the new foul rules and whether he's been overrated and all of that discussion. And then Kyrie Irving, obviously. Patty Mills has not gotten enough attention. So my, my number here is three. And that's how many qualified players have hit at least 44% of their three-pointers during a qualified season while taking more than seven per game. Steph Curry has done it three times. Duncan Robinson did it in 2019-20. And Klay Thompson did it in 2017-18. Patty Mills is on pace to join them and actually has the largest on-off swing among Nets rotation players. I feel like he just needs more love in general for having a truly stellar season that is making life on Durant and Harden that much easier and just not getting any attention for doing it. That's probably fair. Uh, there's You obviously have big stars there that are going to cast a shadow over what everyone else on this roster is doing. And I do think that there have been a lot of positive stories on this team uh, in the face of Kyrie not being there, the, the COVID stuff, then just the extracurricular Kyrie stuff. Are they bringing him back? Yes, they are bringing him back. Always oh, in the least health and safety protocols. Harden having like a James Harden trademark game once every third game at this point, every other game, whatever it's been. So yeah, I would totally agree with you there. I am surprised that maybe you didn't focus on their defense a bit because my question would be, do you think it's real or fake when you look at the results to this I think point? it's a little fake. Yeah, it's they are. I don't, I'm not trying to overstep with the stats here, but when I was looking through stuff, no, no, go ahead. Mine was purely agenda-driven. Mills deserves more attention. Uh, that Patty, by the way, I didn't. not that I didn't like that signing. I was convinced towards the end of last year that Patty Mills might be done. Then he goes off in the Olympics, and I'm like, all right, it's the Olympics. And then it's like, oh, no, you were just fucking wrong. Patty Mills is a G. 
And uh, he has been, has he been their third? He's easily been their third most valuable player this year, right? Like easily. Maybe, you could, maybe you could say LaMarcus Aldridge is in there. I would put Mills well ahead. I'm with you. And I, I'm right there with you where I expected this to be kind of an irrelevant signing. I mean, his his three-point percentage had trended down for each of the last three seasons. It seemed like he was having more trouble generating open looks. And yeah, there's something to be said for the the luxury of playing with Durant, but he's looked incredible within the flow of this offense. I'm The thing that still shocks me, and maybe they'll just get, I don't want to say everything's been luck, but maybe they'll get, you know, for lack of a better word, lucky all season. But this is a team that for most of the year, and yeah, now there's a ton of noise in there, but they're sixth in points allowed per possession this year. There is, I don't, I don't know that there's a faker team-wide stat out there right now than what the Nets have, have gotten. They have been the best three-point shooting defense in the league, which means that they've definitely been fortunate. Opponents are shooting 31.4% from three. The other thing is that they have the fourth best half-court defense in the NBA, but they're not a good defensive rebounding team, and they're getting destroyed when they do allow putbacks. And the other thing is they just don't have a good transition defense. Uh, they are dead last in the NBA, too, in points allowed per possession off a turnover. They're allowing almost 1.5 points per possession off a turnover. That's a lot. I'm not... Look, they're in the top 10 right now. All she can do, you're playing the games. That's what's happened. Legitimately shocking. If that holds all season, my God, I'll be floored. I would too. And I do think there's something to the idea that as much attention as Brooklyn receives and as much attention as the star players receive, some of those pieces might be a little bit underrated on defense. Like James Harden, for all the criticisms he's received, he's actually a pretty competent post defender. He can switch onto some bigger bodies. Durant has been a defensive nightmare for the opposition for a while now, but because he's just so damn good as a scorer, he does not receive enough credit for being a fully well-rounded player. It's more the aging veterans where it's like, do we really want to count on this keeping up for too long? If they want to give 30 minutes a game to Nick Claxton, then sure, maybe that'll happen. Uh, well, I think that James Harden has been atrocious on defense this year. Oh, he has. That, that he has, my... but he's, there's there's a functional use for him, but is I'm my saying... point. Like, he's not just a nightmare in a bad way this time in every single situation. I, um, so I would mostly agree with you, except for this season. I think that he's just been legitimately fringing on useless there. Um I think that they've gotten like really good minutes out of, I mean, Nick Clax has been good since he returned. Bruce Brown helped them. DeAndre Bembry was playing a big role of points for them. James Johnson has given them some really good minutes. Their defense has been again, and some of it might be luck, but their defense has been legitimately good this year, statistically in certain areas. I just question whether it, it will hold. Um, I didn't mean to derail the nets, the nets thing. I'm on the Charlotte Hornets and there's been a lot of attention just paid to their offense, which is, High octane as hell and super fun to watch. There's also been a lot of attention to pay, paid to their defense, which is probably the worst in the league. It is statistically, but I would probably name one or two teams that I would trust even less than them. I just And a lot of it's on the interior. Can they upgrade at center? I just feel like so much attention's already been paid to that. I decided to focus on Miles Bridges. I think that he's sort of fallen off the look at how much this guy's improved ladder. And I've seen people um, citing his decline in efficiency. There's just a ton of extra volume and a level of difficulty ascribed to his field goal attempts. And so I looked at his paint touches this year and among the 60 players with at least 100 paint touches on the season, he is second in points percentage on those paint touches, which means that he has scored 108 percentage of points relative to his number of paint touches. The only player in front of him is Miles Turner. 
He's had, for, to make this an even simpler stat, Miles Bridges is shooting 79.8% on his paint touches this year. He has just been, he has improved a lot, and he's doing just a ton for Charlotte's offense. And this was key to me. He's fourth in the league overall in paint touches. So there really are using him. And when he gets moving downhill, there are a ton of different things that he can do. Yes, you'd like to see him shoot a higher clip from three, but this is someone who I still believe, who I still think deserves to be in the most improved player discussion and who has been mostly really great for, for Charlotte this year. So my, my primary takeaway from that is that you're essentially saying that the rest of the league has miles to go before it can catch up with the two front runners and paint touches. Wow. Wow. It was just, it was sitting right there. I had, I, was, I had to take it. I, you know, knowing knowing your track record, I'm actually surprised that you didn't interrupt me while I was talking to to relay that one. I was surprised uh, that Miles Turner was first. By the way, in uh, I was not expecting that to be the name you came up with. I, I, if I had to guess, I was going to go with Gobert, just because his touches tend to be fairly limited around the basket, and when he does, they're alley oops or easy putbacks. Yeah, so I might have misspoke there, but Miles Turner leads the league in field goal percentage on paint touches with 79.1 among the 60 players that have at least 100. Miles Bridges is second with 78.6. When you look at points percentage, Miles Bridges is actually seventh, and the first one there, I actually bet, I'm going to tell you the name, and I bet you'd be like, oh, yeah, the points percentage leader is Montrezl Harrell. Followed by Followed by Hassan Whiteside, which is another like, oh, I get that. And then Rudy Gobert is third, Jokic is fourth, JaVal McGee is fifth. Turner is sixth, still higher than I thought. Aiton is uh, seventh, and Miles Bridges is eighth. And again, to have those two, you know, have those higher volume guys in just total paint touches, like to know that Miles Bridges is so high up there in in total paint touches on the season and to still um, be like that efficient, just to be, he's fourth overall in the season, just on all touches. So like that's an, an absurdly high number. So he's been great for Charlotte this year. Was the moral of of my story? I would I would say on the point per, on on the point percentage stat, I'm most impressed by Bridges, Jokic, and Turner because that's not due to a limitation in their role. You know they they have more offensive responsibilities than that. Turner is tasked with spacing the floor. Jokic is the hub of everything Denver does on offense. And Bridges is a slasher, a high flyer, a guy who overpowers players with his athleticism, not necessarily just rolls to the basket and catch, catches lobs. And that's not to diminish what Gobert and Whiteside and Harrell do in their roles, because obviously it's still hard to thrive within those, but there are limitations to them. And I also do think there's something to your point about Bridges still being in that MIP discussion and not necessarily getting the credit. And it's just, it's one of those awards where the time at which you're perceived as improving most most is so important because those early season bursts of excellence, if they're not maintained throughout the whole season, then it's like, okay, you actually declined throughout the season and it's harder to compare the baseline of the previous campaign to the entirety of the current one. I mean, he's still upped his points per game average by seven points, his rebounding average by 1.2, his assists by 1.5. He's doing it while maintaining an impressive level of, of efficiency with a drastically increased role within the Charlotte offense. Like year over year, his improvement is so substantial, but month over month, it's less substantial, which is an unfair knock against his candidacy. It's Charlotte is still the best three point shooting team in the league, by the way, even though he is shooting, I think around a career low from three. I didn't even look at that number because I don't care. I just think that he's been, I just think that he's been so good. (laughs) There you go. Let's move on to the Chicago bulls. I did go with a little bit of low hanging fruit here because I know that it has been discussed 
fairly prominently already, but I went with 7.9, which is DeMar DeRozan's scoring average in fourth quarters heading into Monday night's game. That leads the league. It outpaces Giannis Antetokounmpo at 7.4, Kevin Durant at 7.0, and Cole Anthony at 7.0. Beyond that, he's slashing 52-9, 45-5, and per 36 minutes in the fourth quarter, averaging 32.7 points, 7.8 rebounds, 4.0 assists, and only 1.8 turnovers. He has just been absolutely sensational and he's currently checking in on the rpr mvp predictor at nba math at number eight in the mvp race for us personally i think it's underselling him uh, partially just because he's missed some time missed a little bit more time than the other primary contenders for the award he deserves every bit of mvp love that he's getting and maybe a little beyond that just for these herculean efforts in close games and crunch time scenarios and really as a scorer throughout games his his game has just continued to progress, and he looks so comfortable doing what he's best at, which is pulling up for those long jumpers. Maybe, you know, he is the classic defiant answer to the people who are like, oh, you know, the analytics say that's a bad shot if you take a long two or a mid range jumper. Like, it depends on the player. For DeMar DeRozan, we're pretty, pretty sure at this point that those are not bad shots. And the pressure he just puts on on defense is because he can make those. Even we know Kevin Durant and Chris Paul are going to shoot those shots at a higher clip. But his, I think the actually the most important thing he's brought to Chicago this year is just like that steadying decision maker with the ball in his hands. He's been one of the highest IQ, most effective pick and roll ball handlers in the league for more than a half decade, I would say at this point. And to have that now against Zach Levine, and this is this is not a stat, two though, is the number of all-star starters in the East that I think Chicago should have because Zach Levine has quietly had, I think because the Bulls have received so much pub with their new additions, with DeRozan sort of headlining it, he has been magnificent this year. He has just been absolutely spectacular. And when you look at DeRozan qualifying as a forward and Levine as a guard, those two to me are easy starter votes. I'm right there with you. I, I totally agree. I have the Cleveland Cavaliers. I'm going to start doing... Uh, what you what you do with your with your stats nine that is the rank of Darius Garland in unassisted points from three-point range on the season there are only wow. eight players who have tallied more unassisted three-point looks than Darius Garland unassisted three-point uh unassisted total three points like converted three points from beyond the arc than Darius Garland what a terrible way of word vomit to put it the other number on Darius Garland, though, which is similar here, is four. That is his rank. Um, that is his rank in assists at the rim, and this was all just to show that Darius Garland has made the offensive leap this year. I know the Cavs have been sort of this unspectacular offensive team. They've been so good defensively, but with Colin Sexton out, they don't just have a ton of great and established offensive weapons on the team. He has really been the driving force of what they're doing. And to have someone who is so comfortable now just taking off the dribble threes, and if anyone's actually curious as to what he's shooting, there are only four players who are attempting four off the dribble threes per game and shooting better than 37% on them. Steph, Trey, Kemba, just saying, and Darius Garland. He probably, I don't know if he should be in the most improved player discussion just because he was doing a lot of this stuff towards the end of last season. He absolutely belongs in the all-star conversation. So the primary stat here, though, because the, the assist at the rim, when you look at who he plays with and just how he does get his assist with his patience in the lane, um, some of the lobs he throws, just what he can do when he gets to floater range is either taking it or, or really burning the defense with a pass. That didn't shock me, even though four is, is incredibly high, but ninth in total unassisted 
just three points to their name. Uh, that's that's incredible. Especially for a player who struggled with his jumper at the beginning of his NBA career. Granted, he didn't have much college experience to fall back on. That transition was a tough one. But the way he's developed is, is astounding to the point that feels like he's a pretty reasonable 50, 40, 90 candidate in years to come. And when you couple that with the passing vision that we've seen from him, because he's already one of the absolute best passers in the NBA, the the instincts that he has, the feel for the game, like he's one of those guys where you can just tell that he's reading what the opposing defense is before the opposing defense even knows what it's doing and has the, the physical ability to make those passes into tight windows. That's going to be a nightmare to stop, a word I've used a lot this podcast so far, so I'll try to stop using it. Uh, but I, I feel like we're going to see some some 2010 seasons while he's pushing for inclusion in that 50-40-90 club as one of the premier offensive players. Uh, I, I, I think he is that good as a shooter and a passer that as the Cavs continue to, to develop around him, the sky really feels like the limit here. Yeah, and just to drive my point home, here are the players that are in front of him in points generated on unassisted threes, which was the way simpler way to say that. Zach Levine, Jason Tatum, Damian Lillard, Luka Doncic, James Harden, Donovan Mitchell, Trey Young, and Steph Curry. And so that He's shot... Company. Yeah, that's pretty good company. Darius I, do, I do think he benefits from being one of the very few players this year who has not missed significant time. He's only missed two of Cleveland's games to this point. But still, like that's not to discount from what he's doing overall. Yeah, it's the totals or whatever. And then also there's the fact that Colin Sexton's not there. And then like just some of the alternative options on the perimeter, whether it's Ricky Rubio or Isaac Okoro. You probably want Jetty Osman as the second player you trust to launch a three off the dribble on the Cavs this season. Uh, that's, you know, I think that contributes to it. But I, the efficiency and the volume, I mean, four off the dribble threes per game, hitting them at a 37 plus percent clip. Kudos to him. Absolutely. For the Detroit Pistons, I uh, I will admit that I, I spent a while trying to find a good positive stat and just I struggled to the point that I, I couldn't do it. Like I, I thought about highlighting Isaiah Stewart's putback efficiency or about their lottery odds. That would have been a positive. That's stat. a good one. You know, Luca Garza has been surprisingly adept at taking charges, albeit in a small sample size. But I ended up going negative because that's kind of the slant of almost every Detroit stat this season. So my number is three, and that's the number of players on the Pistons roster who have positive scores in offensive box plus minus. Would you care to guess who they are? Three of them, right? Three of them. Isaiah Stewart. Isaiah Stewart is not one. We're off to a bang up start. <laughs> uh, whew, is it Cade Cunningham? Cade Cunningham is getting close, but is not there yet. All right. So I'm just, is, are any of the starters even one of them? Yes. Wow. It can't be. It's not Jeremy Grant. It is, no Jeremy Grant is one of them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is there another starter? Uh, is Kelly Olynyk one of them? He's barely. Kelly Olynyk is one of them. Too. Okay. Yep. That's fine. Um, Corey Joseph. You're never going to guess the third. Hamadou Diallo. You're never going to guess the third. Saban Lee. Cassius Stanley, who has played 21 minutes in one game. There should that's have been it. minutes. That's, that's, that's all three. <laughs> that's all three. That's it. I got nothing else. It's depressing. I'm sorry to the Pistons fans for highlighting it, but uh, better luck next year. <laughs> you just want to move on? I just want to move on. I have, I have the Pacers, and I went two ways here. I know you asked me if I had multiple stats for every team, and my answer was 
No, I do not. But they are such a curiously bad team because you look at some of their vitals and they shouldn't be here. And so I'm using this stat as a launching point into my stat. They are a plus 13.8 points per 100 possessions when Brogdon, Levert, Turner, and Sabonis share the floor. That is a great net rating. They're in the 95th percentile of offense, 89th percentile of defense. Um, there are some, you know, whether it's Justin Holiday or Chris Duarte playing with them, they're still destroying opponents. Take out Duarte or Holiday and put in Keelan Martin, they're still killing opponents. Um, put in O'Shea Brissett instead, limited sample size, they're still slaughtering opponents. And when you just look at how average or better they rank on defense and offense this season, to just see how bad they are in the standings. And so you start to dig deeper. There are a lot of problems that they have, but this is still the stat that stands out to me. They have a 15, 15.4 is the stat here. That is their winning percentage in one possession games during the final two minutes. So games in the final two minutes where the point where the point differential is within three points of either side, they are two and 11. That is the worst winning percentage in the league. And to underscore how often they've played in these situations, they're seventh in total minutes during these situations. They're also a total of a minus 40 in these minutes played. So we're talking about, yeah, okay, they they might be seventh in total minutes played during these one possession crunch time situations in the final two minutes. That's still only a total of 21 minutes. They've been outscored by 40 points in these 21 minutes. The only team that has a worse raw plus minus in these minutes is the Boston Celtics, who are minus 48 across 30 minutes of basketball there. So they have struggled. You can look at their record in just three-point games, whatever, but two and 11 in these adjusted crunch time situations. And I would argue these are more valuable when looking at trying to diagnose what's happening because one possession games in the final two minutes, those are games within reach. This isn't like, oh, we're trailing by seven and then we're able to cut it to four for a really quick second. You're in the final two minutes within three points at least and you have a two and 11 record. This team, I still think can be better as currently constructed. Will they? I have no fucking idea. I have I have no idea. I do think they need a trade just because the better version of this, there's still a cap on what they do. And I do question, and this is coming from a Karis LeVert supporter, I just question how much worse they would be without Karis LeVert. That, and I know he's having kind of a moment right now offensively. I still just question that. What's truly baffling here too is that this is not what you would expect from a team coached by Rick Carlisle. You know, I... I this is the first I'm hearing of the number, so I I don't have any research to back this up. But I would imagine that his teams in Dallas did not suffer through similar issues. I do want to ask you though: the Luka Doncic era Mavs have weren't they, they like they really have. bad in crunch time last year? So yeah, Luka struggled to shoot a lot in crunch time because the offense was just too focused around him. But I, I feel like previous iterations, I don't really remember the same narrative emerging. I am curious though if you think that that's more of a fluke just driven by the inherent small nature of that sample in you know those those crunch time situations or if it's actually emblematic of bigger issues so you know like for example in baseball one run games are typically almost luck driven where you can pretty reasonably expect it to regress back to a 500 record in one run games do you feel the same way here or do you think it's more this is something that we need to be concerned about for the rest of the season? I do think it's something we need to be concerned about because among the other struggles here, I don't know that they have a clear crunch time offensive pecking order or system in place. They've struggled against 
zone defenses and how to bust them. They have Karis LeVert kind of throwing shade at Rick Carlisle about the way he approaches busting zone defenses. We know that I don't think I think Zabonis just fucking hates Rick Carlisle just flat out. I feel like that's a thing that we could sort of pick up on. Um, and then Miles Turner is unhappy with his role. He's taking two shots in these situations, uh, which is, can you guess where he ranks on the team and shots taken during these specific crunch time situations? Dead last. He's seventh. Uh, so that's still pretty low. And again, it's a, it's only a 14-minute sample size for him, but Jeremy Lamb has played in has played four minutes of these crunch time situations taking more shots than you. I'd have to go back and watch every single instance of this, but just they have this, and then they also just have these uber bad inexcusable losses losing to a decimated miami heat roster not once but twice Mm -hmm. that's problematic and so i do think this is more emblematic than not but i am also on record as saying i think this team get them fully healthy give the keys of the offense to o'shea Brissett, and they're going to be a title contender you You heard it here first yeah and probably only here (laughs) who's next the miami heat my number is 53.8 That is their effective field goal percentage this season, which is actually fourth in basketball. It trails only the Utah Jazz, Golden State Warriors, and Phoenix Suns. And, you know, last I heard, those are pretty good teams to be grouped with this season. And I picked this because it's just shocking to me because I think going into this season, the expectation was that Miami is going to be this defensive juggernaut who gums up everything for the opposition and struggles to score on its own because Jimmy Butler is not a floor spacer. Bam Adebayo, not necessarily a floor spacer. Even with the three-point shooters, it seemed like this roster had offensive limitations. And then you throw in that Butler and Adebayo have both missed significant time and Duncan Robinson has missed everything. And it just doesn't make any sense. And yet here we are. And, you know, it's it's largely a testament to when he's been healthy. Butler's inside the arc scoring. Tyler Hero putting pressure on defenses from everywhere. Max Struess becoming one of the NBA's better shooters, just period. And plenty of role players chipping in efficiently on the offensive right on Caleb end. Martin. 100% he's primary among them, I, I would say. P.J. Tucker, too. Uh, I would never have guessed that Miami was going to be a top 10 offense and a top 10 defense this season. They're t- I didn't even know they were a top 10 offense. That shows you how much I know. I thought they were like 12th or 13th or something, but that's they've dealt with not having Bam at a buy. It might depend on where you look. I think on basketball reference, it's seven and seven for the two. Okay. Yeah, cleaning the glass has them 13th. So that's outside of garbage time. And I'm sure they've probably benefited. Yeah. They've played the Pacers twice and beat them. So there's your garbage time right there. But yeah, look. Even if you're above average on offense, knowing how much time Jimmy Butler missed, knowing Bam Adebayo is still out, you've had missed games just all over the place at this point. And I think, at least I did, I build them as one of the shallower teams leading into the regular season. I did too. Season. I thought they were one of the most likely teams to disappoint in a previous episode is where I had them pegged. And they've, they, they have more depth than meets the eye. Like they had, you know, Dwayne Dedman gave him some good minutes before he went out of the lineup. Uh, and like I said, Caleb Martin has been revelation for them both the martin brothers have been good and you were you were all over the Struess potential breakout right i don't know if it, i think i was given a choice of if you had to pick the non-tyler hero bench player to break out i picked max Struess. i don't really know if that's just all take over. the credit all right this is my victory lap <laughs> are we ready for the milwaukee bucks always there i feel like i've talked about the two other stats that i looked at too much is that this team is killing uh, opponents when they play with Giannis, Drew, and Middleton, which I thought was important because it took the Bucks a while to climb up the standings. I've also, if anyone's been tracking, 
Drew Holiday is shooting roughly 1 trillion percent on step-back jumpers this year. And I've mentioned it and tweeted about it, so I didn't want to go that route. But if you want to see your eyes pop out of your head, you can look at that. I went this route. Giannis is being doubled on 35.4% of his offensive possessions this year. That is the highest in the league among like actual rotation players. Just for some context, Joel Embiid is second at 34.5%. And even like Kevin Durant is being doubled on 27.4% of his possessions. I know the roles are different, but I just thought that was interesting. The Bucs, when Giannis is doubled as a team, as a team, the Bucs are averaging 1.21 points per possession. I don't like making these comps, but the most efficient offense in the NBA outside of garbage time, or I think no matter what filter you use at this point, is the Utah Jazz. They average 1.19 points per possession, roughly. So when Giannis is getting doubled, the Bucs are straight up annihilating rival defenses. And I think that has a lot to do with not only his finishing, his just ability to blast through whatever's being thrown at him, but he has become a better decision maker when he's in those situations. And so you can probably trust him to find the right teammate or find a teammate who's going to swing it to another teammate to keep the ball moving. The Bucs, man, look, I'm going to have Phoenix or Golden State as my title favorites right now. The Bucs have a better case than Brooklyn. I think they're right. Look, they're to me right now, there are four top contenders. I'm not even ready to put Brooklyn in there. I have Utah, Milwaukee, Golden State, and Phoenix. Milwaukee is the toast of the East to me. And Giannis, of course, just a huge reason why. I think he deserves to be in the MVP discussion, right with the other three players we talk about most, Steph, Jokic, and KD. I also think he probably needs more love at this point for defensive player of the year when you just look at his overall workload. But then just some of the lifts he's had to make when he's been basically the only star in certain lineups or in certain games, depending on who was available for Milwaukee. Yeah, I, I think you can make an argument that this is the best basketball Giannis has ever played. And it's largely because of how well he's processing everything on both ends of the floor. The reads are quicker. The ability to pass out of those double teams in a beneficial way, it's happening a little bit faster. He's always in the right spot on defense. He's more motivated there, it seems. Just everything is clicking for this guy. He is, he's been unbelievable this year. So I'm, I'm right there with you. I think the double teams probably stem a little bit from how many key players in Milwaukee have been missing time this year. Just if there are such limited options around him, sure, why not? But it's clearly not working, and that's just going to make them even deadlier when everyone is available again. I think also just the where if you look at Embiid, who's still being double a lot, has to do with the post. But when someone goes downhill, I think there's a tendency to overreact. So you're going to see defenders sort of collapse on him. So we probably like triple t- just bodies being close to him with how they're measuring the double teams. Whereas Kevin Durant, yeah, he's going to he'll drive to the hoop and stuff, but he's not like blat, like he's not rolling or diving a lot of the time. And Giannis does that more often than, than him. So there's, there's context of all, but like that's more than a third of his possessions still. Right. That he, uh, there's been classified as a double team and to be that efficient. Um, I don't even want it. There's, I'm not going to mention this number. So I actually might use it on the Western Conference pod. So let's actually just move on to my New York, my New York Knick, Knickerbockers. Well, and spoiler alert, we're going to have more on Embiid in a little bit. But for the New York Knicks, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that this is an agenda-driven one. Not, not as much about the whole team or anything, but my number is 3.77. So among the 266 players who have logged at least 400 minutes this season, only Rudy Gobert has more dunks per 36 minutes than Obi Toppin. Hell yeah. Toppin's at 3.77. Rudy Gobert's at 3.83. Rest of the top 10, JaVale McGee at 3.75. Daniel Gafford, Jared Allen, Montrez Harrell, Mitchell Robinson, Robert Williams, Hassan Whiteside, and Clint Capella. 
You know, I don't I don't think there's anything particularly notable about this stat except give Obi Toppin more minutes. Stop making him put up highlights at the end of games that are already decided. He has something to contribute on offense, and I want to see more of it. I think he could deserve more minutes, too. I do think they've increased his role to where I don't really get mad about his minutes. I might say... Is he playing 40 a game? <laughs> no, that's only... I mean, I guess... So you I should have... get mad about it. <laughs> I, can't, I feel I like know. my voice is getting gravelier and gravelier <laughs> as we get to the Tom Thibodeau coach team. So I'm, I feel like this is appropriate. I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I've ever been less reliable for basketball takes than I have over the past like two and a half to three <laughs> weeks. And I hope... I think everyone should just self-admit that they probably belong under the same umbrella because of how inconsistent availability has been. But... Uh, look, if we want to go the other agenda route, I'm just going to reiterate a stat I made before. There are four players attempting four off the dribble threes per game and shooting 37% or better. Kemba, Trey Young, Steph, and Darius Garland, I think, were the names. I know three of those names are right, and one of the three that you're, are right. No, you're exactly right. Yeah, so, you're exactly so, yeah. Right. Kemba is playing now out of necessity. Derek Rose being injured, players in health and safety protocols. I don't think people claimed when anyone argued that Evan Fournier should have been benched instead of Kemba that no one was watching the Knicks. I don't know that benching either one of them was the answer. I just don't think that benching Kemba Walker made all that much sense is where I stood. I think this team is in need of something that we can't even quantify at this point, other than an increase in minutes for Obi Toppin. That's the one thing that we can point to and say, why isn't he playing? 100%. And I'm going to be honest. I tried to go even deeper here and tried to show that Obi Toppin was actually the most impressive high volume dunker in the NBA this season. (laughs) I can't because he's been assisted on 89% of his dunks and Gobert's at 87%. So there's just, I can't make the case. Uh, Next up is the Orlando Magic. I decided to focus on a player and I almost went the Gary Harris route here, but I didn't think this was really fair. So I'll just mention it really quickly. Very quietly, Gary Harris is shooting 40.3% from three over his past 15 games, shooting 50% on drives for the season. He's on an expiring contract where he makes too much money, but if he's going to be good, serviceable on offense again, if he hits the buyout market or if they're willing to take on bad money, call off Russell Westbrook or something, like there are, there are teams that could really use someone like him. I wanted to focus on Franz Wagner because I still think when we talk about top rookies, and I do have another stat for a rookie coming up, but we're going to focus on Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, even Alperin Shangun and Chris Duarte, I feel like have gotten more shine than a Franz Wagner. He has a long way to go in a lot of aspects if you want to trust some of the stuff he's going to do off the dribble. But he is shooting 10 of 14 on finger rolls this year, which is 71%, 64.3% on bank shots this year, nine of 14. And he's also shooting around 45% on floaters. And so this guy has an in-between game that goes well beyond him just spotting up from beyond the arc or capitalizing in open space. There are real layers to his offensive game. I'm so interested to see where his career ends up. He's been a little bit better, def- or I should say a lot better defensively than I thought. He's played a ton of three, which is a role that I really thought he couldn't satisfy in the NBA. And then I'm overall just fascinated to see sort of what he becomes on offense because this is someone who there's even been like very brief glimpses of like, oh, there's that post touch. That was okay. I think he's a little bit more physical when he's getting into bodies than people think. And he still, look, you look at his, when you start breaking down his shots more, sub 40% on driving layups. Yeah, that's that's a problem. But this is someone who... I don't know if he's been one of the top three rookies. Cade Cunningham is probably getting more mentioned there than him and might des- might deserve it by the end of the year. But he has been, this has been a really rock solid, if not exponentially better rookie season from Franz Wagner. And the Magic, however you feel about their future, they've been 
not good this season. They've started racking up losses as we get later into the schedule, but Franz Wagner has been one of the bright spots for them. I think they've gotten a lot of bright spots out of what projected as their starting five. And now we've seen that get butchered because of Jalen Suggs getting injured and, and all that, but he's maintained, I think his offensive glimpses into high efficiency more so than probably anyone on the team other than Cole Anthony, who has even, he's seen his ebbs and flows there, but We've seen Bamba drop off from shooting well. Wendell Carter Jr. even there as well. Jalen Suggs was struggling all year before his injury. Franz Wagner has been sort of that close to a constant, if not an actual constant. You are on mute, Mr. Adam from if you ever care to come back in and join the discussion. Yeah, let's try that again. Um, I feel like with, with Wagner, it took two or three games before it was like, yeah, this guy knows how to play on offense particularly. He's, he's going to be really good. And he's crafty enough, he's skilled enough, he's physical enough to score in a wide variety of situations. I do want to highlight Cole Anthony again, just because he came up in one of my stats earlier. Seven points per game in the fourth quarter, tied with Kevin Durant for third in the NBA this season. He has endured a little more of a roller coaster than than some of the other uh, top scoring up-and-comers, but it's there. And I feel like Orlando has to be thrilled with both him and Wagner's emergences because it feels like they're closer to having multiple centerpieces than they've been in a long time. Yeah, because like if you go back and make your pick at five, I know there are players who are having better seasons right now, but I still think Jalen Suggs, because you can't evaluate these picks. We can do that in a vacuum and say, yeah, sure, these are the guys that are having the best rookie seasons. But long-term, Jalen Suggs, that's still that's still a pick I'm making if Scotty Barnes is going for. I, I think. You might be able to talk. I love Bowens Island. Shangun's been great. Duarte's been good. We're talking about Franz Wagner. But if the, if Jalen Give Herb Jones is, some love. What's that? Give Herb Jones some love. Herb Jones, I don't know if I'm going to end up with the Pelicans in the next one, but if I don't, I have a Herb Jones stat that, my God, don't try shit on Herb Jones. That's all I got to say. We're on to Europe. Right, Philadelphia 76ers. Correct. They've been my a number sad here lately. Yeah, my, my number here is 21.7, and that is Joel Embiid's assist rate, which is the highest of his career. He's also paired it with the lowest turnover percentage of his career at 10.6%. And I think that's indicative of the strides he's continuously made to shore up his biggest weakness, which is maybe aside from availability sometimes, <laughs> vulnerability when defenses double down against him in the post. We've seen so many times in previous seasons that he gets a little bit of tunnel vision and is particularly susceptible to a defender coming from the weak side and knocking the ball out of his hands. And we've consistently seen him get better at recognizing and avoiding those situations throughout his career. We've seen his turnover percentage, with the exception of 2019-20, decline every single season that he's played in the NBA, reaching its low point at 10.6 so far this season. But this year, he's pairing that with the added vision as a distributor. he's no. It, it no longer feels in those situations like if he is being double teamed, if there's a, a good post defender on him, he's not forcing the issue. He's not even just looking to kick the ball out to a safe space. He's actively looking to facilitate within the Philadelphia offense. The 76ers have still struggled. Tobias Harris has disappointed. Ben Simmons has yet to play or be traded. There are issues up and down the roster, but Embiid has not been among them and has been improving on the offensive end. His 
turnover percentage on post-ups is not surprisingly the best of his career. As you sort of like, it mirrors his season. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a season long turnover percentage was. So that sort of mirrors it. He's still been sloppier. I think when he has to attack off the dribble this year, but I don't know if that's a function of some of the talent around him at this point. And he can be maddening with some of his decision in double teams, but I'm totally with you. This is a guy when he's on the floor, he is one of like the, the five most valuable players in the league. I would argue it's just, is he ever on the floor enough to actually be yep. one of the five most valuable players in the league for an entire season? And I wanted to highlight one like this, because I think particularly with star players, we often fail to recognize those smaller scale improvements that they've made to shore up the fewer weaknesses in their game. And it's, it's pretty clear to me that Embiid has put in that effort, put in the film study to recognize, diagnose, and apply himself in those situations. You ready to move on to the Toronto Raptors? Always. This is, I'm going with Scotty Barnes here because the Raptors offense has been blah and predictably really bad in the half court. But there's, and Scotty Barnes is part of that because of some of the stuff you need him to do. He's not ready yet. He is a rookie. And then also he's not like, I don't think you trust him to do all this creation off the dribble, even though he's a great, I would say he's going to be a very above average passer for someone who plays his position. But since November 21st, he is shooting 41.6% on threes, 54.2% from mid-range, 58.7% inside the restricted area, and 50% on drives. He has an effective field goal percentage of around 55 during this time on all jumpers. That is going to be so massive for the Raptors moving forward. I know he's not you know, taking these quick Steph Curry-like off-the-dribble threes, off the dribble jumpers, that is fine. If you if he's going to hit jumpers, whether they're you know sort of dribbling into them casually, hitting them off the catch, also being able to get inside and be efficient there with the ball in his hands, you're going to be able to use him in such a wide variety of roles. And he's there's there's going to be room to operate for an OG Ananobi, for a Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Fleet, obviously. If he's going to be, and we'll look at just the perimeter. I guess seeing what he can shoot inside the restricted area, not too surprising. But if he's going to be above average from mid-range on drives in general and from three, again, just given the quality of looks that he's getting, they some of them are not these complicated opportunities. They're not supposed to be. You don't need more from him. I've been floored by that. And I had another stat. I think people know how good he's been defensively for a rookie, but I did want to throw this out there. I just didn't settle on it. 329 players have logged at least 250 minutes this season. Per B-ball index, Scotty Barnes ranks first in positional versatility on offense, which is what when you look at the percentage of possessions he spent guarding each position, he's at like 15% for each, at least 15% across all five positions for the season. So they have someone special there, and I'm going to be monitoring his offensive growth like a hawk because not only, I can't even imagine what it'll do for the Raptors ceiling if there's more levels to what he's accomplishing right now, but just him as a player. What is the, I think people just sort of viewed him as even when he was at his best toward the beginning of the year, when he was first, you know, your first introduction to him where you realized he wasn't the project he was billed as it was, Oh, this might be a quaint all-star does a lot of really good things defensively, but there will always be these holes in his offensive game. What if the latter is just not true? What if there just aren't a ton of holes in his offensive game, two, three, four years from now, we're talking about someone that I think has been undersold. This isn't a fringe star ceiling, a maybe all-star type ceiling. I think watching him, maybe I'm sort of jumping the gate here. This feels like someone who has, if everything works out, a superstar's peak. And if I had to 
hedge against him getting there or not. I'm just going to be the optimist here because we're dealing with so much doom and gloom bullshit this year. I'm going to say that he comes closer to reaching it than not. But he's been, I do think the rookie of the year race is closer between him and Evan Mobley than it's sometimes advertised as. With you there. I, I think it's, it's important to note what the expectations were coming in for Barnes, which was that he was supposed to be a defensive menace and a work in progress on offense. And for him just to explode on offense this early is astounding. Now, let's use NBA Math's offensive points added stat real fast. The top five in offensive points added among this year's rookie class, Eugene Amarui right now for the Dallas Mavericks in 18 minutes is at 1.26 in fifth place. Josh Primo in a small sample for the Spurs at 2.66. Then we have, uh, who am I missing? I think that was four and three, sorry. And then number two is Jock Landell at 17.63, again, in a super small sample. And then Scotty Barnes, number one, 23.4 in 973 minutes. He has sustained an above average offensive performance in his debut season, which just was never supposed to happen for him. And it's it's been unbelievably impressive. My other stat for the Raptors that I just have to get out there is just Fred VanVleet. That's it. That's the stat. <laughs> he's been great this year. I mean, he was great last year. Great leader, great human, great player. He's yeah, just he awesome. Is, he is the Raptors. I don't know if I'm too plugged into Raptors Twitter, and that's not in, in I love Raptors Twitter, but they might lead the league in like the most likable players to come through that team over the past two or three years. Fred Van Fleet is just so up there. I'm, I'm with you on everything you said there. That's the stat. Fred, Fred Van Fleet, his likability percentage is infinity. And then some. Wow. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. All right. So f- we'll finish it up with the Washington Wizards and I'll go player focused again here. My number is 59.6 which is Denny Advia's true shooting percentage over 12 games in December. It's the highest career monthly mark he's posted yet since the first five games of his career last December. You know, his, his defense has been the calling card to this point. It's what has enabled him to get more run within this surprisingly competitive Washington rotation. But the offense looks like it's starting to come around. The shots are looking a little more smooth, a little more confident. He's able to find the basket in transition. He's able to find some gaps within the half-court set. If he is this player on offense and can move beyond being that Swiss Army knife who can fill so many different roles at an adequate level, then Washington's ceiling gets that much higher because it is still searching for that player who can join Bradley Beal in the star realm. And there's a there are a lot of you know really good role players, some of whom fill more significant roles than others. I think do you think it's fair to say that Montrez Harrell, as excellent as he's been, still probably a role player who kind of capitalizes against bench players? Daniel Gafford, that high energy guy who might not be scalable within a bigger role. If Advia can be that number two in Washington, if Rui Hachimura can be that number two in Washington, then that team can ascend a little bit higher in the Eastern Conference hierarchy. And Advia's recent performances make it more reasonable to think that he could be that guy. Yeah, look, he's been magnificent on defense this year. I don't know how many times I'm going to say magnificent in this podcast. And if there's maybe more more, than I'll say nightmare. Yeah. So, and if there is another gear there offensively to where he can maintain a higher level consistently, he becomes 
Could you argue that he's their most important long-term player right now? Because what the hell is going to happen so. with Bradley Beal Street? He's clearly their second. I don't want to be too hyperbolic. Uh, Beal has said that he wants to be there, so I'm not going to assume that he, he is going to be on the way out. But he's no worse, no lower than their second most important long-term player right now. And it's really it's been a joy to see the progress that he's made. And I do think uh, Russell Westbrook gets, catches a lot of shit that I don't think he deserves. I. Man, the Russell Westbrook discourse is so bad. There's people who are trying to overcompensate by saying he's been pretty good this year. He really hasn't. He's had high moments, but like he hasn't been in cool. The corner three-point percentage, yes, he's getting a little bit more under control. It hasn't been a banner season for him. But then there are people who just think that he's the root of everything wrong with the Lakers. And aside from them consolidating a bunch of usable players into him, at least two usable players, I would say three because they had that first-round pick, into his salary, the Lakers dumpster fire is not on him i do think he kind of held denny avia back a little bit last year at least looking at it offensively and so i'm i'm more captivated and intrigued by denny avia this season than i ever was at any point last season a totally fair take that does it for us all 15 teams there probably did that more quickly than we normally do at least for a 15 team podcast let us know if you have any cool numbers or if you liked any of our numbers you can find Adam on Twitter at Frommel09. I'm at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. The show is at Hardwood Knox. We have all the accounts to the NBA math website at NBA uh, underscore math, the sports network at V underscore sports underscore math. Uh, those links and handles are also in our podcast feed, so you can check those out. Follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. We are on YouTube, youtube.com. Search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. And most importantly, Please, please, pretty please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. There's a rating system on Spotify now. Use that. I don't care if you use Spotify or iTunes. Let's say you don't use them. Head over there anyway. Throw us those five-star ratings to help juice our standings. And also, if this is your first time listening to us, consider throwing us that permanent subscription. We cover the NBA at large, and we do, I would say, only a modestly insufferable job of, of it. And so you'll be able to withstand most of our content, content, excuse me, we firmly believe. Until next time, though, leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, the most important stat unto himself, Frank Neal Keenan.